5.30. So I'm going to go ahead and call this meeting to order. First item on the agenda is the Pledge of Allegiance. If you'd all please rise with me. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with all. The next item on our agenda is item 1.3, the adoption of the agenda, and I'll seek a motion to approve the adoption of the agenda. Move approval. Sinclair. Thank, thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Is there a second? Borgman, second. Thank you, Ms. Borgman. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. The next item is 1.4, approval of the minutes from the meeting on August 24th. Seek a motion to approve. Move approval. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Thank you, Ms. Hembry. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? Hearing none, we'll move on to item 1.5, approval of minutes for the special board meeting on September 4th. Move to approve. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. Is there a second? Second, Guy. Thank you, Reverend Guy. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, item 1.6, approval of minutes for the special meeting on September 4th regarding legal matters. I'll seek a motion. Move approval. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Second, Hembry. Thank you, Ms. Hembry. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Okay, hearing none, moving on to 1.7, another approval of minutes from the special meeting on September 9th. Do I have a motion to approve? Move approval. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Borgman, second. Thank you, Ms. Borgman. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? Hearing none, we've got one final, 1.8, approval of the board workshop meeting from September 14th, 2020. Move approval. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Borgman, second. Thank you, Ms. Borgman. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? Okay, hearing none, we're moving on to public comment. Um, public comment due to circumstances related to COVID-19 is running from 5.30 to 6 p.m. Instructions for electronic submission of your notice to speak at public comment are found on the Board of Education webpage, and we ask that the notice to speak in public come no later than noon on Monday, although since the meeting today was Tuesday, um, you had a little bit of extra time there. If there's a need for an auxiliary aid or for services relating to accommodations, those can be made to the board clerk so that she can have those at the ready for you when you do come to speak. Um, we ask when making your remarks that you proceed to the podium and share your name, your city of residence, and if there is a school that your children or if yourself are affiliated with to let us know. Please limit your remarks to three minutes or less. And in consideration of everyone's time, if there are people speaking on the same topic and they have the ability to select a group spokesman to do that, that is appreciated. Written comments and or materials um, should be provided to the clerk so that she can distribute to all of us. We ask that you provide eight copies so that all of us and Dr. Fulton can have a copy if you are able to do so. Um, if you have a specific complaint regarding a student or staff, that should be first addressed to administration so that if there are any privacy concerns, we can hear those in the executive session as opposed to in the public meeting. Um, and then generally responses from board members during public comment are limited to clarifying questions. So with that, we will get started with public comment. And the first person on our public comment agenda is Mr. Matt Hetz. If you could please come to the podium. My name's Matt Heitz. Uh, I live in Lenexa. I have a uh, senior and I have a freshman at Northwest this year. We also have a, a second grader that's attending Good Shepherd. Um, like I said, I have a senior and a freshman. My senior, like many seniors, has pretty, a pretty light schedule this year. His schedule includes woodworking, weights, and foods. 
these classes are very difficult to conduct online and he has been left with an extreme amount of time on his hands because they pretty much have turned turned it over for him to go basically figure out something to do. I've seen his motivation decrease over the past few weeks and I'm heartbroken that he will not likely have the experience of a senior year. My freshman is frustrated, confused, disappointed, and often depressed. Connection issues, teachers missing or dismissing class 20 minutes early, and overall lack of interaction are just a few things they struggle with. My two children are among the smaller percentage of kids that have parents with the ability and the willingness to sit down with them and spend their time to help navigate through this. I can only hope that the kids that don't have that same support can find some kind of guidance to make it through this. Bottom line is, the online plan is uh, that it's not providing our children with the education they deserve. It's failing. Leadership. What is leadership? Leadership can be defined as the act of guiding a group of people to achieve a common goal. Successful leaders do not have the word can't in their vocabulary. All leaders often make decisions that do not produce desired results. Successful leaders re recognize this and correct course immediately to get the group back to a path to achieve that common goal. Doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different result is not successful leadership. We need leaders that can say, how can we? Not, we can't. It seems that you, you are in a position, a pretty good position, to try to satisfy our requests to send kids back to school and to still satisfy the requests of, of those that do not want to go back. I understand that there are teachers that are willing to go back, and it's clear that there are students and parents ready to go back. If your choice is to refuse to correct the course, I request that you put the same effort that you and the other community leaders are putting into the data that is being put forth and provided to justify the reason for not going back. I say you put the same effort into putting some data together to display to the public on the risks and the... Um, Thank you, Mr. Heights. Your time has concluded. The next person on our agenda this evening is Kevin or Laura Donnelly. Okay. What I'll do is I'll move to the next person and I'll come back to them to give them an opportunity to come in. Is Dr. Lisa Madsen here this evening? Good evening. My name is Dr. Lisa Madsen and I preside in Shawnee. Um, I practice internal medicine as a primary care provider in our local area. I've had a graduate of Northwest High School and currently have a junior at Northwest and a seventh grader at Trail Ridge. I would like to present to you a professional uh, perspective of COVID-19 and then present unintended consequences of the remote learning. I'm part of a busy primary care practice. Healthcare has had to adapt to having COVID-19 present in our world. We have had to listen and learn quickly and be adaptable at every step in the game without ever changing how we approach healthcare, which is combining science, human physiology, the environment, the community, and each individual's needs. How this looks on a day-to-day -day basis is that we've changed our scheduling process so that the flow of patients works. We wear masks and other PPE. PE, depending on the site and level of care. 
We have intense cleaning standards and social distancing. We have a triage nurse who talks to most of our patients with any COVID concern, exposure, or symptoms. We do parking lot testing with a 24-hour or less turnaround. We counsel people on quarantining measures that, should, that um, follow the CDC guidelines. The presentation of COVID that I see that I'm seeing most is congestion, body aches, fever, headaches, fatigue, cough, occasional shortness of breath, and occasional chest pain. The majority of people who even have symptoms are having mild symptoms lasting a few days. Occasionally, they are lasting longer, such as up to a couple weeks with ongoing fatigue. The adolescent population is mostly asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. I've had adults of all ages with infection from the adolescent all the way up to 96 who did well and survived. If people have underlying conditions, I certainly do watch them close and take um, extra measures to keep them safe. But again, the majority are doing well. The hospital I work for announces weekly updates of statistics. Last Wednesday, numbers were 20 patients in the hospital with five on the ventilator. And that's been a very steady number since the 1st of July. We have a positivity rate of 0.5% for asymptomatic patients being tested, and that's over 10,000 patients for pre-op and pre-procedures. Then the positivity rate for the symptomatic patients is averaging about 13 to 15% over the past eight weeks, or past, sorry, two to three months. At no time have I stopped seeing patients. We are running well. The hospitals are running well with routine care and elective and emergent surgeries. As you can imagine, the healthcare system embodies some of the most at-risk people, and the mitigation strategies are working well. Yes, healthcare is an essential Thank service. Thank you, Dr. Madsen. Your time has concluded. Okay. I do have a handout with the rest of it that I'd appreciate if you looked at. Thank you. May I ask a clarifying question? Sure, go ahead. Dr. Madsen, thank you for your presentation. You had mentioned um, risk mitigation strategies. Um, I know you've had a chance to look at the risk mitigation strategies for SMSD. Do you feel like, in your professional opinion, they are safe, they're appropriate to keep our students and staff safe from COVID based on your personal opinion and your medical expertise? Yes, and I have looked at them. I went through the website and I've looked in, and the links that, that you have as well, and they, they seem right on. And um, I've also been interviewing teachers and custodial staff from other schools around our area, and they're giving reports that they're doing well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll go back to Mr. Kevin or Ms. Laura Donnelly. Are they in the room at this juncture? Okay. Um, moving on to Dr. Chris Bowser. Thank you. My name is Chris Bowser. My family and I live in Prairie Village. We have two daughters, uh, Prairie Elementary and Indian Hills Middle. I'm also an emergency physician. We have been on the front line dealing with COVID firsthand daily. While today I speak as a private citizen, I'm sharing the information I've learned based on this experience. I would like to highlight important evidence-based points regarding school gating criteria, infection risk, and the urgency of returning children to school. Shawnee Mission School District has aligned itself with the Johnson County Health Department, its data, and gating recommendations. An important metric used for gating decisions is two-week positivity rate. This metric uh, has issues limiting its usefulness. First, those tested are most, mostly sick or exposed patients. Because it is not a random sample, tests may be positive more often. 
This is called sampling bias. Secondly, only 25% of the recommended testing amount is obtained. Third, the method for calculating test positivity by Johnson County Department of Health differs from Kansas Department of Health and the CDC. Reliance on Johnson County Department of Health data results in a more difficult standard to move through uh, gates. This can keep children out of schools longer than necessary. If Shawnee Mission chooses to continue using two-week test positivity rate, employing Kansas Department of Health data would allow more flexibility in opening schools. Johnson County Department of Health refers to only two metrics in gating decisions, two-week test positivity and trend in incidence rates. They both use the same information. Shawnee Mission could employ additional metrics suggested by Kansas or the CDC. Leaders would then have more flexibility to keep schools open while retaining support from health agencies. Other districts in our county appear to be having success doing this. The COVID-19 risk uh, of death or serious morbidity to children or healthy adults under 60 is low. Based on CDC estimates, more than 99.99% of children and 99.95% of healthy adults infected survive. Children and healthy adults do not offer, often suffer serious morbidity or require hospitalization. Hospitals have operated without transmitting disease, mostly using simple measures such as masks and hand hygiene. School reopening experience worldwide has demonstrated success using the same precaution. Schools have not been sources of significant community outbreaks. Returning children to schools is urgent. There are not extra years for children to, to learn. The pandemic is not expected to end soon and may last beyond 2021. This is undoubtedly a challenging decision. As with many scenarios, there is no guarantee of 100% safety. We believe opening schools with proper precautions has the support of the district medical community. The majority of students and parents, however, prefer in-person learning. Thank, Thank you, you, Dr. Bowser. May I ask a clarifying question? Go ahead, Jamie. <coughs> Dr. Bowser, you had sent us a thank you. You had sent us a longer letter uh, a couple days ago, and you had talked about you really did sort of a deep dive into um, the metrics that are used between the CDC, the KDHE, as well as JCDHE. And it looks like, according to KDHE, their Johnson County positivity rate is at 6%, whereas JCDHE is at 12.3%. And the bottom line is it looks like the metrics are different in terms of how KDHE and the CDC is, is calculating positivity rate versus JCDHE. Is that, is that accurate? I think that's an accurate summary. It's labeled as the same thing, but they're actually not the same thing. Kansas and the CDC calculate the test differently and report it differently than Johnson County. The problem lies in the fact that uh, that result is applied to the same standard either way that it's calculated, and that makes it uh, uh, sets a higher bar for returning children to school and moving through gates use, using the method provided by Johnson County. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yep. I'll try one more time for uh, the Donnellys to see if either of them have shown, and then I'm going to take them out of the rotation. Okay, moving on. Uh, Ms. Feingold is next on our list. I'm Lisa Feingold. I work at Hawker Grove Middle School. I have a student at Shawnee Mission North, and the majority of people I know are not represented by any of the comments that have been made here. 
thus far. The last board meeting, the reopening update, included a presentation which featured comments from teachers and students. And while I was pleased to hear how well the first few days went, their experiences seemed dissimilar from many others in the community. So I asked, how were participants selected? Some members of the Canvas implementation team were specifically invited to share their positive experiences. But just positive experiences, why not a range of experiences? Omitting challenges is misleading. Promoting a particular point of view to influence public opinion is the textbook definition of propaganda. Is the board only interested in hearing about things that are going well? I know some of you on the board actively seek input, collecting information to help acknowledge, identify, and explore successes as well as challenges in order to develop improvements. The district has asked us to be flexible as we move through constant changes. Students, families, and employees have been bending in ways we never could have imagined. I'm a food service employee working as a custodian. Building principals are unpacking boxes, moving furniture, and teachers are doing everything. Often round the clock on evenings and weekends on their own time, troubleshooting by crowdsourcing information. Expecting teachers to solve student tech issues and answer Canvas, WebEx questions in the midst of learning new platforms themselves while simultaneously teaching class if all the necessary connections are working isn't asking them to be flexible, it's requiring them to be contortionists. I believe we are a district community of intelligent, passionate people, and there are solutions available to us. Sharing regular tech texts, tech checks and platform tips addressing common problems that our students are having, providing tech trainers, using thought exchange to enable teachers, students, families, and district personnel to share issues they're grappling with and solutions they've figured out in real time. Also would be a great way to gather information so that the majority of the population could actually be represented. Communicating up-to-date information and notifications on the breaking news section of the website to alert people to necessary updates and computer issues. It is apparent our district community is not working together in unison. Some neighboring districts have modified plans and defy scientific recommendations because it might seem easier than identifying and implementing solutions. But I believe our district is strong enough to identify and claim its challenges and draw from its numerous strengths and talents to create solutions if the district is serious about partnering and working collaboratively and if communication is honest, transparent, and timely. Thank you. Thank you. The next person on our agenda is Ms. Kalina Aguera. I apologize if I mispronounced her last name. I'm Kalina Aguirre from Merriam. I have three boys at Merriam Park Elementary. And I wanted to thank you for your time today. I know this has not been an easy time for anyone, um, parents, teachers, administrators. So I do appreciate the job that you are doing. None of us signed up to do school during a pandemic. It's just the hand we're dealt and we're dealing with. But unfortunately, last night, about 2,000 students were notified of changes to their, who their teacher is going to be. Unfortunately, it only went out to the first guardian listed in Skyward. So some of our parents were not even aware um, that their student would be changing. I'm hearing that the number is about 286 additional students who did not request to be changed were changed to different teachers, including some of my friends who were frantically texting me to see if it was their third grader or their first grader who was being switched. The emails did not include a student name nor did they include a grade, nor when you go to the websites for some of the schools could you find 
what grade the teacher actually is teaching this year because several of our teachers have changed grades through this process and website updating hasn't happened, which I understand our secretaries are very overwhelmed at the moment. You guys said if we signed up for remote and my principal said it as well, that we would get consistency. If you want consistency, you wanna know where your kid's going to be, who they're going to be with and what they're doing, sign up for remote learning. Unfortunately, it has been chaos. My kids are learning and thriving, I'm very lucky. But we've had nothing but changes. My kindergartner had not started school when we got the email from Dr. Fulton telling us we needed to choose for a whole year what he would be doing. I didn't know what he would be doing. We hadn't started school yet. And now I'm finding that my PTA vice president is wanting to quit because her kid no longer goes to our home school. They were transferred to a new school for online learning. She didn't change anything. She was just, her child was just part of logistics and was removed to another school along with about, I can, I don't know the exact number, but it appears there were about 15 to 20 kids in that class that were removed to three different schools because their teacher had to go in person because we couldn't, we don't have, we're too kids shy of having enough to trigger a fourth teacher. So it's very frustrating. On top of that, it has been discovered that we didn't set up our content filter on our iPads. So parents were posting about how their kids could get into chats. And I finally got some of that resolved, but I still don't have a parental login that I was promised so that we can set up our own iPads. I have no control over the devices that are from the school, and that's very frustrating. And no one can seem to help me get that information. Thank you. Thank you. Our next scheduled speaker is Mr. Chad Reed. My name is Chad Reed. I live in Lenexa and my daughter attends Shawnee Mission North. Today I stand before you doing something I've never done in my entire adult life. And that is addressing a group of those that I'm under their authority, knowing that many of my dear friends and colleagues who I admire and respect will not only disagree, but can more than likely be upset with me. Starting my 28th year of teaching and 22 in the same building here in this district, this is the first time in my life that I feel that I needed to take this risk. Yes, we should wear masks, socially distance, and student and staff with significant health issues should be given options to learn and work remotely. Yet we're living in a day and age where many are either engulfed in fear or battling trying not to live in it. People are afraid of getting sick, of infecting someone they love, and worse yet, death is not off the table. But I also can't help but think if decision makers are possibly battling fear. Have you ever thought to yourself, what if I make the wrong decision? What if I get blamed if we move too quickly or too slowly? What if I cost people's deteriorating health or even worse? You guys are in a tough situation. Child review supporting is down, and I'm sure someone might talk about the statistics. But the nightmare that so many kids live in right now, at least when they are in school, they can find a respite. When at school, they can escape whatever they're living in to, and be surrounded by friends and teachers who accept and love them. Right now, those children do not have a break from that reality, with no one in sight and no one to advocate or protect them. As a father of three, and with the past 20 years having kids in the Shawnee Mission School District, myself working with so many teenagers who are right now trying to navigate isolation, life, and literal mental anguish, our secondary level kids are really struggling. 
Yet when they finally reunite and they interact with one another, whether at rehearsals or activities, and I've seen this so recently, when they are in contact with their peers and friends, the, the light in their eyes return. They need each other. I can't imagine being in your position. You're all elected public officials and administrators, and you want to spend your time serving everyone in our community. You now find yourself thrown in a situation that you didn't ask for, a situation you didn't create, where there are no easy answers and it is impossible to please everyone. Yes, it's a risk to open in a hybrid or full in-person learning situation for secondary schools. We should weigh all of the ramifications of secondary level schools remaining closed just as much as the realities COVID has unfortunately brought on us. The decisions ahead of you are not easy, but keeping secondary schools closed should be about primarily more than just the number of positive COVID cases. Keeping secondary level schools closed is not by definition the compassionate thing to do. Compassionate and brave decisions illuminate what's best, not just for any one person, but for everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Um, our final speaker tonight is Mr. Lon Ness. Hello, my name is Lon Ness, and uh, I'm a resident of Lenexa. And unlike most of your speakers here tonight, I am not an employee of the district, and I am not a parent of a school-aged child. I am a resident of Lenexa, and I am the spouse of a teacher dedicated to the district. Almost every night, she comes home and voices her concerns to me and those of her coworkers. She shares the conversations and the daily burdens that they all share amongst themselves with me. For one reason or another, they are often unwilling or unable to come here and voice those concerns to you. And so I've decided to do so. I am here tonight to ensure that those teachers have a voice as well. These are teachers. These are not soldiers, police officers, or firefighters. They're not even doctors or nurses. They did not choose a profession where their health and their lives would be on the line daily. But now, because of decisions made in this room, that is the situation that they find themselves in. I would like to share a couple snippets here um, from the CDC. This is from a handout on pediatric health care provider information. Recent evidence suggests that children likely have the same or higher viral loads in the, their nasopharynx compared to adults, and that children can spread the virus effectively in households and camp settings. This was published before uh, the school opening in the fall. So they focused on household settings and camps. Also from the CDC, their most recent guideline puts the positivity percentage for the highest risk of transmission in school at 10%, which was the gating criteria that Shawnee Mission School District shared with their teachers a couple of weeks ago before moving to 15%. That came out, I believe, uh, last week from the CDC. That is the newest information from them. And next, I'll reference Shawnee Mission School District's own survey where they asked staff if they are comfortable returning in person to work. And 53% of their certified staff disagreed or strongly disagreed. 
compared to only 27% who agreed. This shows a level of concern amongst the teachers that I don't feel like has been addressed tonight. They also asked, do you have a high-risk condition for COVID-19 of their staff? To which 42% of the certified staff answered yes. Thank you, Mr. Ness, for joining us this evening. That is the conclusion of your three minutes. Um, if you have written comments, you can provide them to Terry and she'll make sure we get it. And that goes for all of our speakers. That is the conclusion of public comment for tonight. And that puts us to moving towards 2.02 for Dr. Fulton's superintendent report. Okay, thank you very much. And also thank you to the speakers for coming and sharing your thoughts with us this evening. Well, I want to start off uh, by, uh, by thanking you. Our first weeks of school have been like any other in our district's history. And even so, I want to express my gratitude to everyone who's making learning possible for all of our children. Uh, you know, I've had a little bit of time to visit classrooms and we'll be in classrooms more in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, but I've had a little bit of an opportunity to see what's taking place. And I've been really glad to see that all of our learners are engaged in robust learning opportunities. And teachers are doing their best to provide for uh, their students. Students and teachers are working together and they're making connections daily in, uh, in school. Now I might add here, a couple of examples here of the learning experiences that are going on. First of all, students are creating projects in their home using at-home materials to learn science, technology, engineering, and math principles. Some teachers have provided at-home experiment kits so students can test pH balance. We've seen art lessons using overhead cameras so students can create their own projects along with their teachers. And virtual galleries featuring student work are starting to be curated. Some students have already attended virtual field trips as their teachers take them to surprise locations across the city for learning experiences. So we are a few weeks into this school year and certainly our community is adapting and adjusting to many different circumstances. Uh, but we want to thank our educators, our students, our families, and our community for everything that they're doing to make sure that learning is occurring for all of our students in these very challenging circumstances. So thank you to everyone for your collaboration and work. We want to provide a reminder to our community that free meals are available to all Shawnee Mission students regardless of the learning model. These meals are funded entirely by the U.S. Department of Agriculture as part of the Summer Meals Program uh, extension. Those needing information about the meal opportunities can find it on the district website, and we will link it in the recap. Students and families are able to pick up meals on Fridays from 7 to 9 a.m. at their school. Our food service department provided nearly 46,000 meals for students on the first day of pickup and have provided tens of thousands since then. We thank them for all the work they are doing to provide students the nutrition that they need. The Journalism Education Association will honor Tucker Love, journalism and advising publications teacher at Shawnee Mission South, this November with a 2020 Rising Star Award. They are honoring him for his commitment to scholastic journalism and media advising. During his time at Shawnee Mission South, students have won multiple state and national honors for their outstanding publications. In their announcement, JEA noted that Love was a Shawnee Mission journalism student who was taught by Becky Tate. 
Shawnee Mission North journalism instructor. Congratulations to Tucker Love as he celebrates this great achievement. The Shawnee Mission School District congratulates the 13 Shawnee Mission students who were named semifinalists in the 2021 National Merit Scholarship Program. They have qualified to continue in competition for scholarship offers worth more than $30 million, which will be offered next spring. Students are considered for the honor based on taking the 2019 preliminary SAT National Merit Scholarship Qualifying Test. We'll post the complete list on the district website, but we want to congratulate all the honorees, their teachers, and their families. We also tonight want to extend congratulations to Christopher Petrello, a Shawnee Mission South High School sophomore, for being named one of only 10 finalists from around the world in the ICTUS International Trumpet Competition. As a freshman, Christopher was the first Shawnee Mission South student ever to make the Kansas All-State Band. Since then, he was selected as a semifinalist for the National Trumpet Competition and then earned the position of first trumpet in a National Honor Band sponsored by the National Federation of Music Educators, where he was also the first Shawnee Mission South band member to be invited into that prestigious ensemble. He participates in band at Shawnee Mission South under the direction of Steve Adams. Congratulations to Christopher. I also want to mention that families who have young children from pregnancy to age five and live in the Shawnee Mission School District are invited to enroll in Shawnee Mission parents as teachers. For those unfamiliar, this is a national program that connects families with trained educators who promote early development, learning, and health of children by supporting and engaging parents and caregivers. Enrollment for parents is free of cost. The program provides evidence-based home visits, now being conducted virtually, and numerous resources and connections to support families. We will include a link in the recap for those who are interested in enrolling or learning more. It's a great program, and I encourage parents to, to utilize it. Well, tonight, we are very glad to honor three outstanding Shawnee Mission employees as Shawnee Mission All-Stars. These individuals were selected to be honored in the spring, but due to the pandemic, their board recognitions were postponed. We will be sharing the videos that were produced prior to spring break 2020 in a few moments. First, I want to invite Dr. Jeremy Higgins, Principal at Shawnee Mission North, to introduce our first honoree of the evening. Good evening, board members, Dr. Fulton, Dr. Atha. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here this evening to introduce and recognize the Shawnee Mission School District All-Star for the month of April, I think. <laughs> Mr. Brett Daney is the building manager at Shawnee Mission North High School. In his role, Brett is called on to use his expertise in a variety of different tasks, from general building maintenance to HVAC issues, electrical projects, setting up for events, and everything in between. Brett is no doubt the go-to person when something at North needs fixed or something needs done. His work ethic and knowledge aren't the only qualities that make him qualified and deserving of this award. In my opinion, it's his selflessness 
that truly makes him great. Brett is always there to lend a helping hand, and he does so with a smile on his face. I can guarantee you that I've called on Brett a number of times for help, and he's probably been busy doing another project. But guess what? He's always there to help. He drops what he's doing and is there to help. He always does this, and that's what makes him truly a great colleague. So, Brett, on behalf of everyone at Shawnee Mission North, we thank you for everything that we do, for everything that you do, and uh, we are so proud of you for receiving this recognition. So, Mr. Brett Daney. Brett Daney is the building manager at North High School, and, and Brett's just a, a tremendous uh, employee of our department. And one of the things that's unique about Brett is that he has served as a head custodian at all levels in the district. Uh, so he's a tremendous problem solver and he is really leaned on as a resource by custodial maintenance staff to help them with issues they face. We've had custodians here that, I mean, they've done a lot. But Brett is, he never gets upset about things. He's always willing to help, no matter what the situation is. But I mean, Brett, Brett can do it all. I'm a firm believer in actions speak louder than words, and Brett exemplifies that to the hundredth degree. If he says he's gonna do something, he always follows through with that. Uh, his knowledge base is just incredible, and, and what he knows about the building and the ins and outs. He's truly a go-to guy um, here at North. I'm uh, actually the senior class president here at North, so we have a lot of stuff that we do with student council, and uh, Brett's always there to set up, and one thing he's been, the extra help that we needed, we're working on the senior gift, and um, he's really good at getting dimensions and walls and like being able to help us set stuff up, so he's been a big help with that. There's no job that's too big or too small for him to handle. Um, as the head custodian or the building manager, there may be some things that he tries to, that you would think be delegated to a different person, um, whether that's grabbing a mop and cleaning up a spill or whatever it is, he, he's always willing to help out wherever he's needed. I'm just very excited that you were nominated and that you got the award. You're so deserving of it. Everything that you do uh, for us here at Shawnee Mission North, for the students, for the staff, for the entire building, it is um, beyond thanks uh, for everything that you do. It's uh, so appreciated and we're so thankful uh, to be able to, to call you a colleague. So great job. Keep up the good work. Hey, congratulations, Brett. Well deserved. We thank you for your continued dedication and efforts to keeping the Brick House the best school in the district. Wow. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, great. I've always enjoyed my time at Shawnee Mission. I've been with the district about 12 years, four different schools, and the best thing about it is, is the people I get to work with every day, you know, whether it's the students or teachers or other staff members, um, just a great place to work. So I'm grateful. Thank you. Well, congratulations. Next, we have Jennifer Duke, who is the principal at Rose Hill Elementary, and she's here to introduce our next honoree. Good evening, board and Dr. Fulton. I am Jen Duke, I'm the principal at Rose Hill, and I feel extremely honored to be here tonight to introduce Mrs. Bridget Fullington, who teaches pre-kindergarten at Rose Hill, who is a very deserving SMSD All-Star. 
as educators, we have a goal to strive to provide a well-rounded, unforgettable learning experience for the students we come into contact with. Mrs. Fullington delivers on this goal and then some. She sets the stage for our earliest learners by creating meaningful relationships with families that are long lasting. But she doesn't stop there. Long after students have left her classroom, she impacts them. She checks on them. She remembers important things about them. She believes in them. Bottom line, she loves them. And they love her. And I love her. <laughs> so thank you, Mrs. Fullington, on behalf of Rose Hill, for being our all-star all the time. She's a good teacher. She works for PK, and she's... She's like one of my favorite teachers because she does good with her kids and her students. She really understands how to connect with our kids and families and just gets to know them on such a deep level. And Mrs. Fullington is amazing with that and how she really brings everyone together. And it gets the kids just to be so, so eager to learn. I love going into her classroom just because you see that purposeful play going on and seeing all the kids and how they interact with one another. It brightens up our day around here to see our youngest learners working so hard. And Mrs. Fullington is the catalyst for that. She brings everyone together. She's just an amazing person. She, she is an all-star teacher. She helps not only our level, but she also helps upper grades too and gets those kids to enjoy school again. That is so cool. She tries her best to be a great good teacher. She tries her best to be nice to students. Like she like wants to have a little bit of fun while teaching them. She is a woman who can read any situation. She just has this innate ability to find the way to get kids what they need. She's constantly working on coaching us and leading us and supporting us in um, to become more and more knowledgeable at how to, how to support kids. Sometimes she teaches funny, sometimes she teaches serious. She's the best because she wants the, she wants the best for everybody. I think the staff really sees her as an amazing person that they can work with. Um, and use her as kind of like that that beacon. You know, that's what that's how we want um, we aspire ourselves to be. The kids love her, and that's that's important. It makes the education fun. Congratulations, Miss Fullerton. Uh, you deserve the All Star Award, and I'm happy for you. You're a nice teacher, Miss Fullerton. Keep up the great work. Congratulations, Bridget. We are so proud of you. Thank you for everything you do for our community. Yeah. Mrs. Bridget Fullington, you are so incredible. We are so blessed to have you in our building. You deserve this. It's been a great honor to working with you, and I'm so excited for you. Much deserved, much earned. Congratulations. Good evening. I tell you, I am so excited every day to get to go to work um, with early childhood with a mission statement that includes the word joy. You can see it. Um, I'm in tears because you get to see kids. Um, I'm so excited that Monday comes and we do get to have children, their laughter back in the classroom. Um, so with that being said, these are tears of joy because I'm so excited that this is what I get to do every day. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
congratulations and thank you for all your great work. Next, uh, I want to have Jeremy McDonald come up. Jeremy's the principal at Westridge uh, Middle School, and he's here to introduce our next All-Star. Good evening, board. Good evening, Dr. Fulton. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Jeremy McDonald, the principal at Westridge Middle School, and it is my honor to recognize Mrs. Amy Nine, the social worker at Westridge Middle School uh, this evening. Uh, Amy has many, many strengths, uh, but her greatest is she's an absolute rock star at building relationships with our diverse uh, student and family population. Um, she just works so hard and, and to make sure that our kids have the supports and the resources that they need to be successful at school. Um, she's a great communicator, an outstandingly hard worker, and just an absolutely in it for kids. Um, a couple things I just wanted to highlight real quickly here is she takes a strong lead on our Caring for Kids team and it's instrumental in getting our families in, engaged in what we do at Westridge and so uh, one of the big things that we've taken on the past couple years and she's a huge part of this is our Project Give Hope where we've basically opened up Westridge gymnasiums for opportunities for families to come in and shop for Thanksgiving meals and resources. Um, so she's also opened the cat's closet at Westridge, which is just a, a room at Westridge that we've dedicated for school supplies, resources, canned food, um, school. Uh, and I've also made it her office this year. So thanks for your flexibility, Amy. Um, but anyway, it's my honor to, again, recognize Mrs. Amy Nine, the social worker at Westridge Middle School. Thank you. She's awesome, she's amazing, definitely so deserving of this award. She sees the good in people. Yeah, if there was a social worker hall of fame, she would be a first ballot hall of famer. She was just born to be our social worker. I feel like Amy Nine's an all-star because she has that it factor. Uh, she has a true passion and a love for kids, number one. And she comes to work every day um, and puts everything that she has into helping kids um, with, with whatever social, emotional needs that, that they need. You know, she just she takes the work very, very seriously and and really engages with the students in a way that makes them feel unique and special. I guess it just makes me feel like I'm appreciated and that I'll never feel like alone when she's in the school because I know that I can always go talk to her. She's always like a friend there for you. She's helped me with family problems and friend problems and she's just really always been there for me. She's amazing with the children. She's patient and loving um, and so non-judgmental. She is so sensitive and kind and understanding. Um, I want to go talk to her half the time. <laughs> she could be my counselor. She just is incredible at what she does and just an incredible person overall. She works really hard. She gets students connected with um, volunteers or our MVP program. She arranges our back snack program for our students. Um, hopefully you got a chance to see the cat's closet. So the cat's closet was a, an idea that Miss Nine brought to, to, to me and um, I said well let's see if we can have a space for it. So it's basically a resource um, center for students just you know in our community or here at Westridge so it is full of clothing, it has food items, it has hygiene products, basically anything that, that, that we can do to help kids uh, that don't have things. It's a, it's a place that they can go and get things that they need. Congratulations, Amy. We love you. Congratulations, Ms. Nine. Thanks for always helping me out when I need it. I cannot think of someone more deserving than you. I love getting to work with you. 
Um, you inspire me every day. And thank you for being there for me and everybody else in this school. Congratulations, Amy. Um, I love working with you, and I look forward to working with you for many more years to come. Amy Nine, I am so proud to recognize you and that you are being recognized as a district all-star. Oh, really? Uh, you are very, very deserving. I'm so proud of you. You are a champion for kids. Um, thank you so much for this award. Um, as a student that grew up in Shawnee Mission, um, it's really a privilege to be able to serve here. Um, I've just loved my time working in the West area with our families and our students, and um, I work with really great people that I feel like make me look good. <laughs> so I'm so appreciative for the administrators that I work with and the counselors and the staff, um, staff is working so hard right now, and students and parents especially, and um, so just don't forget, we're here to support all of you. So thank you so much for this honor. And congratulations again to all of our honorees, and that concludes our report for this evening. I missed those. Such a nice slice of normal. Yeah. Um, moving on to item 2.03. Board members' reports. Um, we'll start with Ms. Borgman. Do you have a report from SMAC PTA for us? There's a SMAC general meeting on October 5th, so I will have more to report at the next meeting. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Embry, do you have anything for us from the foundation? Just a brief reminder that the breakfast is November 3rd. It will be that date in person or virtual, I think, is still to be determined, but it's going to be that date no matter what. Thank you. Reverend Guy, do you have an update for us from KS KSB Board of Directors? I do. KASB has been sending out um, lots of information, so I hope you're all getting their updates and um, just being aware of all the things they're doing. They are, along with the district and many other people, urging people to fill out their census. The deadline is coming for that, and it's crucial um, for funding and all sorts of other um, ways that help our communities and our schools. So just one last word to get, get those censuses filled out. Um, they are having an advocacy update at noon this Friday, and Commissioner Randy Watson is going to be a guest. So if you are available during the noon hour on Friday, you can register for that advocacy in action and the advocacy update. And uh, you can even put questions in the chat box that they can ask him and he can answer in real time. So that's happening this Friday. And then they are continuing to do lunch and learn sessions on Wednesdays at noon as well. And their legal team is available. And again, you can ask questions in the, in the chat box and they'll answer them in real time as well. They are also offering several workshops, including one on equity that I think uh, they're offering twice in October. So if that's something you're interested in, you can get more information on their website and see if you want to attend that. And then I want to make you aware that they're doing the fall regional roundtables, and the one for our area is Wednesday, October 14th at 6 p.m. But you can attend any of them, since they're online especially, you can attend any of them. Um, but if you are available October 14th, that would be best, because that's going to be other Johnson County area schools. Um, so we'll get to have conversations with other school board members from other schools in our area. And again, ask more questions. I think they even put us in smaller breakout rooms. And um, so 
You get to meet some new people, but you also get to talk about what we've all been dealing with. Um, I also want to make you aware that they have published the proposed amendments that will be voted on at the December meeting. So if you want to take a few moments to look through those, just in general, um, most of them are just updating their terms of membership and they're changing language in their constitution to be non-gendered language. The one substantial change is um, the terms of the elected officers so that they will coincide with the newly, well, it's not so new anymore, but with the um, newer school board elected terms that was changed, what, three, four years ago? Um, so they hadn't caught up yet with that. So that's kind of the big substantial change. So you can look through those and just make sure that you are aware of all those changes. And then lastly, I just wanted to make the board members aware that John Heim, the executive director of KASB, published a blog, I think today, it was in today's email. Um, and I'll just tell you the title of his blog post, Board Members Need Grace as They Navigate Pandemic in a Pressure Cooker. So he speaks on behalf of all the school board members in the whole state of Kansas, trying to help people understand what it's like to be a school board member right now. And so um, it's helpful just for you to read it for yourself and know that somebody understands, but you may also want to share it with friends and family members so that maybe they have a better understanding as well. So I just want to make you aware that that's out there too. And that's my report. Thank you, Reverend Guy. Um, Dr. Sinclair, do you have a legislative liaison with KSB uh, update for us? Or? No, we'll meet um, in November and we'll have updates then of how the platform is evolving. Thank you. Session. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Goodburn, do you have a nominating committee update for us tonight? I do. I've Great. filled my duties on Saturday, September 12th as part of the nominating committee of 15 regions of KASB. So there was 15 of us in the room representing school districts all over this, the regions all over the state. Um, we actually uh, had three candidates this year that we interviewed. Um, and then after some discussion, we have um, sent forward Jason Winbolt from Spring Hill School District to be the designee elect of, uh, of KSB, so the president elect. So it would be actually, there's already somebody in the waiting wing, so it would be two years, I guess, before he would actually serve. Um, it's, sorry, it's voted upon though at the meeting in December. Uh, I believe that meeting's virtual now, so um, our voting delegate will be the one that would vote um, on, on that person. So anyway, but we just uh, sent the one through Jason Winbolt from Spring Hill, if you haven't heard that already. So that's my report, and I'm done for the year for that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm, st I'm sticking with you, though, for our policy review committee update because we have our second reading tonight. I don't know if you've got an update for us on that. Or I do. Well, uh, yeah. let's see. Later on in the agenda, we have the second read. I think it's item number 5.01, the second read of the approval revised board policy GAAD, child abuse. And then also we have a meeting, I believe, this Thursday. Um, we missed our meeting last month because of some out-of-town um, folks and also some unavailability of uh, district personnel. So um, we did miss that meeting, but we'll catch up this meeting and uh, have a meeting on Thursday. So anyway, thank you. Thank you. Um, and then I'll move to Mr. Stratton. Do you have an update for us on the Finance and Facilities Committee? We have not met since our last board meeting, but we will be setting a fall meeting date shortly. Thank you. Um, that concludes our board member reports, and we will move on to the board financial report. Yes, and 
invite Mr. Russ Knapp, our Chief Financial Officer, to come up and uh, provide the Board Financial Report. Well, good evening. The, the Board Financial Report that is attached is as of August 31st. Um, it's pretty early in the fiscal year, but we are watching the Food Service Fund. Um, as you know, uh, student meals are free, at least through December 31st, and we're being re reimbursed on the uh, summer lunch program. So we'll be keeping a close eye on our, our revenues and, and our expenses in that fund as we go uh, forward through the fiscal year. I wanted to give you an update on the CARES Fund. KSDE recently um, changed the method of allocating money to the private schools. Um, they were using um, student enrollment, and now they're changing that to free and reduce. And the result of that change, um, the district will be reallocating money back to spend uh, at the district level about $350,000. And so with that change in our year-to-date numbers and including our future commitments, we have approximately about $700,000 left in CARES fund money and another $250,000 in the special education CARES fund money to spend. And if you remember that, we have all the way through September of 2022 uh, to... 21. 21. To spend that. Um, in addition... Uh, the district will be working on a, a submission to Johnson County for COVID-related expenditures, uh, and the reimbursement would be from Johnson County's um, CARES fund as well. So we'll be submitting that. That is Their deadline for that is December 31st, as Johnson County has to spend theirs by December 31st, 2020. So we'll be working on a claim to submit to uh, them as well. And that concludes my report. If you have any questions. Um, yeah, go ahead, Dr. Sinclair. So the change of the KSD formula and allocating dollars, CARES Act dollars to the private schools, that's a pretty big swing for us that we had allocated over 400,000 of our, uh, almost 20% of our dollars allocated. So mm -hmm. that's a, it's yeah. helpful to know so three hundred and fifty thousand is that what you said came back. To, okay. Yes. So that I was yeah that, I was getting a little nervous being September and only having a couple hundred thousand to get us through to the end of the school year with unanticipated expenses coming up. So that mm -hmm. feels a little bit better. Correct. Thank you, Ms. Embry. I don't know if it's a question for for Russ or a question for later, but I know yesterday was our date for an attendance count to determine our funding allocations for the not this current school year, but the following. Is that accurate? Uh, Dr. Ratha and Mr. That's Napa correct. Well, September twenty first was the official headcount day, Monday. A week and ago, yesterday. Yeah. Okay. It's usually on the twentieth, but that was a Sunday, so it rolls to the twenty first, and it was that whole week. They averaged it because we're in the remote. Uh, section. So we're working on that. My my uh, business office, Allison Strosky, works on that. Uh, our deadline is like October 4th or something to submit that to the state. And then we're first out of the gate to be audited. So they're scheduled to come in uh, about the last three weeks of October. And so we'll know what our, our numbers are fairly quick. Um, Do we have any like early indications? Yeah, our, we're about 1,400 kids down. Uh, but it's important to note that the, the funding formula is on your higher of your two prior years. So we'll probably still be working off 
1819 school year for funding this year. Now the weightings will be affected. So the headcount is based on two prior years, but the weightings are based on the September 20th. So if our free lunch is down, we will lose revenue uh, based on what we projected in the budget. If our free lunch is down, ELL numbers are down, um, CTE vocational numbers are down. So those weightings will be impacted. And I guess timing-wise, when will we get a report on what those numbers look like and what the implications are for our budget for this year? Most likely uh, November. Uh, the audit will take about three weeks, and then we give or take about a 30-day window to appeal, and then um, they kind of they, they really don't finalize the numbers until May, but we'll have a very good idea what those numbers are in November. Thank you. Yes. Does anyone else have any questions? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're moving to Dr. Fulton's reopening school report. Well, good evening. This is uh, going to be a relatively brief report. You know, it's it was great seeing the photos of the children tonight and the teachers and staff, wasn't it? And gave you, or it reminded us of what we all long for, and that's normalcy. And yet we recognize, and when the speakers uh, talked about this tonight, is it could be some time before what we used to experience, we get to experience once again. And until that time, we'll have to continue to find ways to engage all of our learners in, uh, in ways that are safe, productive, make sure that we're taking care of children, staff, and really the community. Because one of the things that we know is that people are hurting right now. It's a difficult time of life for all of us. Isolation, uncertainty, those are difficult things to go through in the human experience. And we're all having that experience at some level. And so as we go through uh, this year, I want to encourage us to find our voice and share it with each other. And I also want to encourage to do it in ways that are respectful, productive, and build one another up. Uh, to engage in activities which from time to time people do that are destructive, hurts at a personal level, and it hurts at a community level too. Because to the extent that we can grow through this together, it will make us stronger to the extent that we find ways to in any way demean one another it hurts all of us and so uh, I want to commend you as a board I cannot think of a more difficult time to work through than what you're doing right now there are no clear paths but there are paths that have to be created and that is what we're in the process of doing not just in Shawnee Mission, not just in Johnson County, but across this country. And so we have to learn and grow together. But I want to encourage you that even in these most difficult of times to stay the course, do your best. You're volunteers. You're doing this for the love of children and for the love of adults, staff, and your community, our community. Thank you for that. And with that, I want to just start off with a reminder of why we're here. You're going to see lots of duplication in some of these slides. I won't spend much time on, on any of them. 
but we have this powerful notion that we are indeed a bridge to unlimited possibilities yet to be discovered. We are a school district, which means we're composed of lots of learners and adults who work together to help to all of us to create a reality for a better future for our community and for this world. And we need to do that in ways that are inclusive and engaging of all learners. But we also have expectations, don't we? The notion of a personalized learning plan is taking on new meaning this year. Am I going to be a remote learner and for how long? Do I want to be in class? What does that look like? Who am I as a staff member? Do I feel safe coming in and how do I engage learners when I want them to be in a classroom with me but at the moment can't do that? There are lots of questions, thoughts, concerns, and as shared tonight, lots of joy too. I look forward to our learners coming in to the classroom. That was, uh, again, powerful videos on, uh, on what that does for relationships for all of us. We also need to keep our eye on academics. It's key to equity. We recognize that remote learning has its challenges. We've heard that. As we move to uh, in-class learning at the elementary level, hybrid will bring opportunities and challenges as will in-person learning. I'll talk about a little bit of that later on. And then finally, gosh, we're all learning interpersonal skills to be empathetic members of society as we learn to work together. You've seen these next couple slides often before. I want to just give you a quick update. Previous meeting, I talked about the fact that uh, uh, Johnson County was working on updating its gating criteria. There's nothing in the public domain on that yet. I know they're still working on revisions. And as soon as those revisions become available, I'll make sure that you're made aware of them. As a reminder, at the elementary level, if we're in the red gating criteria, uh, we are uh, allowed to do full in-person learning. That is true in yellow and green as well. But if we ever hit remote, uh, which is an increase in cases and more than 15% positive, we'll have to go uh, into a uh, remote-only mode. For the secondary students, uh, it's a bit more challenging because for them, when you're in red, and we are currently in red and we're going to be in red, it looks like, for a little while, uh, those guidelines call for remote-only learning with hybrid possible in yellow. Uh, I've shared in the last couple of meetings that um, I have reached out to the county and asked this question, what, uh, if any, protocols could be identified that would enable us to have in-person learning uh, if we're in red? I'm not suggesting that we're all in, but at the very least, a hybrid approach. Um, I know that they're thinking about that. They have not yet provided an answer to me on that question. And I'm sure our conversations, which have been good, will continue as we uh, dig deeper into the possibility of on-site learning for our secondary students. Also, as you know, guidance was provided on activities and athletics. I suspect that this language may well find itself into the new uh, gating criteria. However, I'll leave that up to JC. DHE to make that determination. But that is a guidance that we've been provided and that you've approved. 
for uh, an elementary update. We have, um, you know, and I apologize for the slide, it didn't convert cleanly. So we'll work on that in the future. But the, uh, as you know, September 14th, uh, parents selected a learning model for the remainder of the year in their preferred mode. And then we had a process by which they could make a determination at semester if they really did want to make a change, but with some caveats. Uh, we'll do the best we can to, to meet uh, the parents' needs. September 15th through 25th, we need a couple weeks there to really get students placed in their new setting. Um, I have a few uh, numbers I can update you with. And this this uh, applies to pre-K through 6. We, uh, we reassigned uh, students during that week remote to in-person. We had 735 students who went from remote to in-person in pre-K through 6. And we had 213 students who moved from in-person to remote. Now, one of the difficult and, and uh, consequences of this, and it was, again, alluded to by one of the speakers, is the fact that we did have to reassign a number of remote-only learners who did not make a change. They, they stayed remote-only. We did have to uh, reassign them to different teachers. The reason for that is, is that for pre-K through 6, we had about 20 staff that were moved from one learning mode to another. Because of, because of the large number of students who wanted to, to move from remote-only to in-person, we had to move a number of remote teachers into in-person. That's what caused the reassignment for the remote-only learners. So we had 20 staff that were moved from one learning mode to another, two staff that moved from both a new learning mode and, and had to do a physical move, and then one staff member who had to change learning modes, do a physical move, and change grade levels. And so we thank the staff for uh, what they did to make this work. Our hat's off to them. Uh, they did a great job. They've been very receptive to it. It's not always easy. We know that. And also thank you to the parents and the students who are also going through this change process. Now we can settle down for the year. So what does the rest of the year look like? Well, this year, or this week rather, we're working with uh, staff who are transitioning and we needed this week to do that. We weren't sure how many staff were going to have, have to transition. Fortunately, it was not quite as many as what we thought it might be, so that was good. They did a great job of working with our, getting our students placed. On October 5th, uh, our students uh, in grades uh, pre-K through 2 come into school in a hybrid model. Uh, students in grades three, six, 3 through 6 will stay remote, but in their new structures. By uh, that next week, the 12th, everybody will be in hybrid. The following week, pre-K through two students will go in in whole. Grades, students in grades uh, three through six will stay hybrid, and then all students will be in, in grades pre-K through six the week of the October 26th. Now, you might wonder, why does it take so long? Well, there's some logistical reasons why. First of all, we need to make sure that we're following the safe opening principles that are laid out by JCDHE, practice those, work through important logistical considerations such as building entry and exit, and lunch. Lunch is actually a big deal. You, to, in order to maintain social distancing of at least three feet, 
when you take your uh, mask off, uh, six feet is preferred. But you, you know, when you're when you're eating lunch, you've got to be at least three feet away. Um, that we do not have space under normal circumstances to do that. We are going to have elongated lunch periods, and in some buildings, that could be really elongated. It, it will take several hours to to get lunch done. So we'll have to make sure that parents understand that they need to work to try to send a snack with their child, particularly if they have an, uh, if they have an early lunch, they're going to get hungry in the afternoon perhaps. If they have a late lunch, then they'll have to uh, probably have something to snack on earlier in the day. So we'll be uh, talking about that with parents. All of the other logistical concerns, such as making sure that we have desks that are appropriately placed. Uh, that's involved some changing out of furniture, and we work with uh, buildings and, and individual teachers on that as needed. So uh, it will take a few weeks, but we'll get all the logistics at every building worked out, and they'll create new structures that they've never used before to uh, successfully engage in uh, having all children in the classroom. Cohorting will be very important to that. So students will stay together with their cohort. That's what makes secondary more challenging for us because you can't cohort. The way secondary schools are set up, as we know, when kids change classes, it's difficult to cohort students. That's why you can do it at elementary easier than you can secondary. And so um, those are kind of some of the big picture um, uh, updates that you need to be aware of. Uh, one other consideration here, two other considerations. One is transportation. That's taking a lot of careful planning. I think I'm just going to be very realistic here because of limitations that we have on transportation. I imagine you could at some schools get some uh, rather lengthy backups of parents dropping off kids. So we just need to be prepared for that. And then um, special education. As you know, we need to continue to meet federal guidelines. It's important that we be meeting with the students in person, and those federal guidelines have to be followed. And so that will present some uh, challenges from time to time that we'll just need to do the very best we can to meet the needs of uh, all the children in the school, including and especially uh, the needs of our, of our special needs students. And so that concludes my report. I'll be happy to uh, respond to any questions you might have, and I have some friends here behind me that will be happy to help out as well. Um, I think we'll go around the table, and I'll start with Ms. Embry, and we'll just work our way around. I, you know, I think the question I keep getting the most from community members is one of, one of the things that we committed to at the end of July when we drafted our original op reopening plan was a commitment to provide clarity and certainty when possible and to request flexibility of our community when necessary. And I think we still owe some of that clarity to the community around what our plans are. Um, and I hear that especially with secondary students. People just want to know what the plan is. Um, and, I, and I don't know that we've given them that. So I don't know what your answer to that question would be. I also recognize that, that this is kind of a, a, a Q&A without anything we're in front of us that we're actually voting on. So I'm, I'm happy to reflect some of those questions back to you, but I also want folks at home to know 
that this is an opportunity for us to all ask questions, but it's not necessarily that there's something in front of us to be voting on at this point in time. So that's the question I get the most, so I'm gonna pass it along to you. Be happy to answer it. You know, when we adopted the, the Johnson County gating criteria, uh, that secondary piece has been uh, constant throughout. And so uh, the, I guess my answer would be, as long as we're following the Johnson County gating criteria and we're in red, then by definition, at this point, we're in remote. Uh, that's why, though, I've also posed the question, you know, what protocols, if any, can be developed that would allow us to have in-person instruction in red? You know, you think back, I think back, anyway, to, to July when we were in yellow. It was uh, maybe hopeful, but I think a little hard to conceive that we would be sitting in red for this long period of time. But we are. And so that's part of the ongoing dialogue with the county, though, is as, as our understanding of COVID-19 grows, as we see different practices happening around us and we look at the results of those practices, you know, it's my hope that we just continue to grow in our understanding of what best practices look like when it comes to these gating criteria. But um, as long as we're following the Johnson County grading criteria and we're in red, they call for us to be in remote. And that's, honestly, that's, a, that's the only response I have at the moment. Well, and I'll add a follow-up response to that because we initially had on the agenda for this evening to um, vote to add KSDE's gating criteria to the whereas statement. Um, and I pulled that from the agenda this evening because I had some questions that I didn't have answers for yet, and I didn't want to have a situation where we were voting on something where we didn't have answers to particular questions. Um, I don't know what it does with regards to initially the idea of adopting additional guidance into the criteria was that we would continue to use the gating criteria under JCDHE, but then we would also have advisement and guidance from other agencies that had provided information after we had already voted on adopting JCDHEs. And so the potential for that changing how we perhaps assess the gating criteria, if that is something that were to occur, then I think we need to make sure that we have enough information for the underlying questions that will be supporting that. It would be more than just saying, okay, we're also gonna be getting guidance from someone else because if we get guidance from someone else that does ultimately end up changing where we're going, I think that that is more than just a vote for a whereas statement during a regularly scheduled board meeting. And it strikes me that that would be something that would need to be presented in a workshop situation so that we would have time to get feedback from the community on that and to make sure that all of the board members' questions with relation to that would be answered. So I did pull that from the agenda this evening and we'll work to getting additional information so that every board member's questions can be answered on that so that we, if there is a change to the plan for some reason, then, that, then there's an opportunity for administrators to provide information on what that plan would be or what the data or information underlying it to support it would be. Just to give clarification on that one. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, Ms. Kripper? I was gonna, oh. nothing from me right now. Okay, um, perfect. Well, then we'll move to you, Dr. Sinclair. Well, um, if we're talking about secondary before we shift back to the elementary update, I wonder if Dr. Fulton, you could add a little bit, one of my, one of the, the pieces that I understood that differentiated secondary is that the, the, that instruction is not 
naturally cohorted like elementary. Can you just speak a little bit more to that of, of why secondary might be treated differently and is? I can. Um, it goes back to the fact that when you're in an elementary setting and you have one group of students, you can actually bring teachers if you need to to those students, like specialists, for example. You don't have to do that, but you can if you choose to. Regardless, those students are with each other all day. In the secondary setting, of course, you're set up by content classes. And it's difficult and really impossible by the time you get to the high school level. Well, I'd say nothing's impossible, but very difficult to set up cohort groups at the secondary level when you're running content-based classes because people change schedules. You also have the issue of making sure that these protocols that have been clearly identified by various agencies, whether it's CDC, the Kansas Department of Health, or the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment, such as uh, appropriate mask wearing, social distancing, um, those kinds of things. You, you've got to make sure that those are done with fidelity. And of course, the larger the environment, the, more, the bigger the crowd, we know the more difficult it becomes to enforce those kinds of requirements. Not saying it can't be done, it just becomes a much more complex problem to solve. And then you get into other issues like we were talking about with um, the county health department today. And that has to do with contact tracing. Because one of the things that's really important here is if you get a report of someone perhaps having COVID-19, then you've got to do contact tracing for all the students who they interacted with. Well, if you're, in a, uh, if you're in an elementary classroom and you're with a cohort, you know everyone that's sitting around that child. That's a difficult thing to do in a bigger, more complex environment where people move, are moving from class to class. Easier to do with hybrid because you have fewer numbers of students, people are socially distanced, and you've got fewer people in the hallways, but once you put everybody in, that becomes a real challenge. Uh, the other issue that we're, and this is an update for you, although it's really not an update, <laughs> is testing. Uh, we keep waiting on uh, specific guidance on when testing will become available uh, to school districts. Now, they are going to provide us with uh, some initial tests here. So we do have some access, but not at the level that it will be needed in order to keep schools in session. In fact, we were in today's discussion, we we're talking about the need to make sure that when, um, as more testing becomes available, to make sure that the health department is providing information on what that availability looks like, uh, how the data, uh, how the test is going to be used, and the data from that that testing to be used to inform uh, keeping schools open. I will say this as a pitch: any child, uh, anyone above five can go and get tested by the Johnson County Department of Health and Environment. Um, and you do not have to be symptomatic to get that test, which is nice. So uh, there are a number of complicating factors that make secondary a more complex design challenge. Now, there are districts that are doing it, and we know that here in Johnson County, uh, right now in a hybrid model. Uh, uh, there's. Spring Hill, I think, has just decided they're going to go with all students in. Uh, 
So those are the kinds of things that we are uh, prepared to work through, are working through, once we uh, get the, the uh, green light to, if, if that happens, for us to conduct uh, in-person uh, class when we're in the red gating zone. But, so when I talk about protocols, those are the sorts of protocols that we're, that we're thinking about. And the county really needs to be a partner in helping to weigh in on how to make that work. Mr. Stratton. Uh, my question's about staffing as we continue to move through these various stages. Um, I've wanted to see if there's an update on what our staffing needs are and more specifically around subs and also around paras. I think there's a different change in Missouri than there is in Kansas. So if you could give an update on subs, and again, again, we're unique because we use a third-party service for our subs as opposed to doing our recruiting. So do we have updates on, on staffing? Yeah, Dr. Schumacher, come up and speak to that. Good evening, everyone. Um, yeah, we do partner with Kelly Educational Staffing for our substitute needs, and they uh, require uh, the same licensure that we would in the state of Kansas. So they need to have a substitute license, an emergency sub-license, or a general teaching license to work for them. Um, and as, as of right now, we are good on subs. And I say good in that we're able to fill the positions that we need. Um, what we've done, because we've been in remote, is that we've placed building subs in each of our buildings, uh, two at the elementaries, uh, two at the middle, and four at the high schools. Um, each of those uh, building subs are credentialed for that building, and so when a remote teacher needs to be absent, they can jump into Canvas, they can jump on a WebEx and actually instruct those remote students. Um, when elementary schools go into hybrid uh, next week, we will start utilizing those daily subs as we have traditionally, because again, they'll be in person and they should be able to serve those um, student needs. So as of right now, we're in a good spot with our substitutes. Great, thank you. You're welcome. Reverend Guy. Uh, my first question is about the lunches. So we heard in your report that um, the federal government is providing both breakfasts and lunches for all students right now. Uh, I guess at least through December 30th right now, but we don't know for sure. I'll have, I'll have the expert come okay. up and speak to that. So Nancy, my question is, um, so when we have students in person in the building, I assume that the federal government will continue to yes. provide yes. and also a free breakfast? Free breakfast and free lunch. So the students child. that have a 1.30 or 2 o'clock lunch period, perhaps, if we have to drag it out that long, will have, yes, they will have breakfast free. provided. Yes, free okay. breakfast and free lunch. The caveat on, just to clarify, is if a child wanted something extra, they wanted a second piece of pizza or they wanted a package of chips, they would have to pay for that. Okay. But it is totally free. And we will still ring the student up through the computer system so the parent can see that the child ate, but it will be a zero cost to that. Okay, wonderful. Okay. And so the parents that are remote, will they still pick up a whole mm -hmm. week's worth of food? Yes, as it's we will been continue, doing? and I'm glad you mentioned that. Thank you. We will continue to do the seven-day distribution, but I want to stress that once we come all back in, I want parents to know they can come pick up a two-day distribution for Saturday and Sunday. So the distribution will continue every single Friday through December as long as the feds continue with the money. 
Okay, so and, it'll be a little confusing in hybrid that the students might eat in school a couple days, but we've got it under control. Okay, you know I figured us. you did, but I just we wanted to make it. sure that families knew. Please, we want them that, to come. Yes, food we available. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. We Thank may you. have to make a small time change on distribution once we're all in, because we can't have distribution happening when kids are coming into the building for safety of children. Okay. So that may be a small little change that we have to make, but we've still got about three weeks before we have to make that change. But yes, we want everybody to know that we will continue to do the Friday distributions. Okay, great, thank you. Uh-huh. I have a quick follow-up while you're up there, Ms. Kokonar, if you can. Um, does this mean then um, we are paused with regards to our concerns over the lunch debt from the program that we had implemented last year? Yes, um, yes. So that is frozen for the moment and right. we do not have concerns there. What did that freeze at? Where were we with that debt? And I, my, I apologize. The, you can email it to me later. No, I'm just I'm curious. I feel like our, it was like 50000 Our negative 000, account balance landed right around the $30,000 30, mark. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. Ms. Borgman? I feel like Nancy should have a shirt or, or a sign that says, I've got this. That'd <laughs> <laughs> be a very appropriate shirt. Yes, definitely. Um, so we, the board and Dr. Fulton, we received a letter um, <clears throat> from Dr. Bowser as well that was signed on behalf of Dr. Bowser and eight local physicians in um, that are all stakeholders in, in the SMSD community, which I, I thought was really interesting. And I really just want to take a second and say thank you to all those physicians for, um, for sending that letter to us. So <clears throat> I thought it was an interesting um, couple of uh, points that Dr. Bowser et al. had mentioned. Um, the data reported for Johnson County by JCDHE and KDHE unfortunately demonstrate significant discrepancy. As of this writing, during the 14-day period from 9-6 to 9-19, test positivity rate for Johnson County reported by JCDHE was 12.3%. For the same period, KDHE reported the Johnson County test positivity rate was 6%. How can such disparate results occur? Both JCDHE KDHE and KDHE report similar numbers of positive tests, but KDHE reports almost double the number of total tests as JCDHE for Johnson County. Inquiries to JCDHE have not yielded a specific response. According to information pre presented by JCDHE officials via an SMSD-hosted forum, JCDHE deduplicates test results on individuals. This results in a substantially lower number of total tests counted in the final result. The smaller denominator results in much higher reported positivity rate as total positive tests are similar. The method the CDC uses to report this metric is different, number of positive tests divided by total number of tests. It appears JCDHE strives to count any person only once, example number of people with positive tests divided by people with all tests. It is apparent that KDHE uses the CDC method. So as we as we've evolved as COVID has evolved, um, you know, we approved the resolution in July um, because that was all we had. All we had was the JCDHE gating criteria. So now we have a number of other gating criteria um, to consider. We have um, the MidAmerica 
Um, Regional Council has a gating criteria. CDC has a gating criteria. K- KSDHE has a gating criteria as well as JCDHE. Um, I would like to see in the very near future, because I do think that there is some urgency behind this, I would like to see a review of the gating criteria and if it is indeed, in fact, the best interest of kids and staff to continue along the path of JCDHE. Um, because, again, in Dr. Bowser's letter, um, he, had sa- he has said reliance on JCDHE data results in a more difficult standard to move through gates. This can keep children out of schools longer than necessary. If SMSD chooses to continue using two-week positivity rate, employing KDH data would allow more flexibility in open schools. So I think if the end goal is to try to get kids back into school, okay, through pre-K through 12, I mean, I think it's worth reviewing all the gating criteria to determine is this still meeting the needs of Shawnee Mission students and staff. We want to keep our staff safe, for sure. We want to keep our students safe, for sure. And we also want to make sure that students in SMSD at all levels are receiving the quality of education that you know we've come to rely on. Would it be possible to have some type of review of all gating criteria as well as to look at what other districts are doing? Because we can't ignore the fact that other districts around us have gotten secondary kiddos in and they've done it well. Yeah, let me uh, step back. First of all, I think you've brought up an important point that when we adopted the county criteria, they, they led the way. That was the that was the. GOAT standard because it was the only standard that was set forth and they did a good job with that. To, to uh, do what you request, it would be important to take all of the uh, different approaches and kind of methodically lay them out side by side. There, there's a lot of overlap between them, but uh, some of the differences really do sit in the way in which the calculation is done and that determines what gating zone you end up in. That's why you'll have uh, some Johnson County school districts that are uh, sending secondary students in into, uh, at least initially, a hybrid model or have been in a hybrid model. And it all goes back to where did that calculation land them in terms of what was permissible? So is it possible? Yes. I think it would require, again, laying out the different approaches and probably also, and I think this would be important to ask for uh, experts familiar with those documents beyond just district staff, say from the county or the state, or from Mark, to come and describe what their particular approach is. And then, of course, there are, uh, with the Kansas model in particular, some nuances where there's some flexibility that districts can use. And I'll just stop there. I think it, this really goes back to the challenge we're facing as a nation and certainly as a region of having a consistent approach. I mean, we've talked about this before here in a pandemic. You'd, you really, ideally, you're going to have one consistent, at least regional approach, particularly in a metropolitan area. And we have, uh, we have several different approaches, and it's causing a lot of understandable confusion. Then we can learn from what other districts around us have done. And I know these teachers are working around the clock. I I think someone had mentioned earlier they're working on the weekends. They're working, you know, 
hours upon hours to make sure that kids are getting exactly what they need um, for the situation that we're in. The problem is, is that you just cannot replace in-person learning. Um, and so we have to make sure that that's a direction that, you know, if it's possible in a safe way, you know, that we owe it to our students to take a closer look, in my opinion. Yeah, and part of the complexity of working through this is uh, working with parents in terms of what their, their level of uh, uh, feeling safe is. The same would be for students and also for staff. Um, the one thing that, uh, Jessica, kind of goes back to your other question on communication. One of the things that we have been able to do, particularly at the secondary levels, we've been very consistent. Now, whether, whether folks like the results of that consistency or not is another matter. <laughs> uh, but, but the message has been consistent. The approach has been consistent. I think the question is, is it, the, is it, is it for the long term especially, is it the right approach? And so that's, I think, what you're, what you're getting to. I have more questions, but I'll just <clears throat> go around the table. Yeah, thanks. thanks. <laughs> Ms. Embry? Uh, I just wanted to make, a, a, I guess, a clarifying point that when you say we've adopted the JCDHE criteria, which I want to be super clear about saying that I have a ton of faith in our health department, but I also want to acknowledge that when we actually approved this resolution, it said that we would be informed by actionable criteria articulated by the CDC, KDHE, and JCDHE. I haven't seen us actually go back and look at the CDC criteria or the KDHE criteria. And I, I bring it up not because I don't trust JCDHE, but because this is a novel virus. This is an unknown situation. There's a lot of changing science, a lot of changing information. And triangulating our path versus multiple public health entities is not a bad idea. I think we could learn a lot by looking at what kind of criteria we're getting from the CDC and from KDHE and from JCDHE, and all of that is well within the resolution we've already approved. Yeah, the, the CDC, we do have what their guidance at the time. We were able to integrate a number of their guidance principles into our reopening document. So, for example, these are some things like with transportation that were really helpful that we integrated in. They didn't come out with uh, what, quote-unquote, a, a gating criteria look until uh, recently, as you know. Um, but then with the health department, when Kansas came out with theirs, it wasn't... Uh, it was a little bit different. It was a little bit different because they they used a panel of uh, partly um, well epidemiologists, but also pediatricians and educators as well. So it was more of an it had much more of an education bent to it than what uh, Johnson County's did originally. And so um, you know those are those are documents that we've been relying on. But uh, I understand your point. I just want us to get comfortable, and I think this is a piece also for our community to hear that um, I, I know people want consistency. I know people want to think that, that, they, that things are going to happen in a predictable way, but I also know we know more about COVID-19 now than we, than we did two months ago, and we're going to know more two months from now too, and that can cut in either direction. I mean, we could very much in the next couple of weeks see a lot of transmission happening in schools that makes us feel a lot less comfortable with a lot of things. We could also see very little transmission happen in schools that makes us feel more comfortable with a lot of things. And I think we need to be ready to 
you know, not call it flip-flopping or not call it going back on promises, but call it growing and changing and evolving. And that's how I'm trying to look at it is always putting what's best for students first and acknowledging that our understanding of what that is is going to change over the course of this school year. And that doesn't mean anyone's doing anything nefarious or anything wrong. It means that we're willing to grow and learn and keep on putting students at the middle. You know, that's one of the reasons I've been such an advocate of increased testing. Increased testing can, can take you in a direction that says that things are really safe and you can be in school. Increased testing could shut us down. But the beauty of increased testing is, is it gives you data this real time that you can work from and that you're going to make better decisions if you have that data sitting in front of you. And that's something that we uh, couldn't even really, well, certainly was not available in, in uh, the early months of this, not in July, not even really in August. That's been a emerging during September that testing might even be a possibility for us, which is good. But we still don't know what that looks like yet. We'll find out, I hope, soon. Ms. Goodburn? Um, not that I need this information tonight. I think it just would be interesting to know, um, especially for, at the middle school and high school level, the percentage of attendance daily that the teachers are seeing. I, I heard, um, but I, don't, um, I heard from one high school principal that I just happened to run into uh, that it was good, but I just think it would be interesting for us all to hear. You know, and I know that we're going to be seeing in a hybrid model, and then eventually by the end of the month, everybody in pre-K through six, so we'll have those attendance, that attendance data. But I think it would be interesting for middle school and high school for us to hear. That's, uh, that's data that we can definitely provide mm -hmm. going forward, and it's interesting that, that that attendance is a component of uh, the Kansas model. Mm -hmm. And that uh, the, the thing is, though, of course, you, you need to have students in school for it to really work for that purpose, at least in a hybrid approach. And we're seeing districts like uh, DeSoto that have been hybrid at the secondary level for a while. They're starting to collect that data to see whether or not uh, they are being impacted by um, by COVID-19. So um, those are the kinds of uh, data that we can definitely look at. Yeah, I would just love to see it, I guess, for the remote learners right now, too, to know what the engagement, what the engagement looks like, you know, from... Yeah, I will, I will echo what you've heard, though, and that is that actually attendance has been, uh, has been good, but we'll define good by getting numbers to you. My turn. Um, how is hotspot distribution going for those kiddos? Have we increased hotspot numbers? Are we doing good there? Um, if there's a general report on making sure all of our kids, if they're remote um, or even still in hybrid. Yeah. Is Dr. Um, Ziegler here? I don't know. Is she behind right, me? I can't uh, see Dr. Ziegler oh, she can provide an update for you on that. Thank you. Main numbers are up. Uh, we are over 250 on the requests uh, this week. Uh, I talked with principals today. Um, our secondary principals met this afternoon or this morning and did share um, that they have been grateful for that resource. So thank you for, for what you did there. Um, I do suspect that we will continue. I anticipate we'll continue to distribute for the next few weeks. I know that we have some families that are still using personal hotspots. But as those data plans become stressed, um, I anticipate that they'll reach out. And so our schools are monitoring. They'll reach out to families. Um, and, and meeting those needs. But we are up. They're still rolling in. The requests are coming in by the day. Do we anticipate that we have enough of them to meet the demands as we move forward into the fall, or do you think that we could potentially exceed the demands that we currently have? 
I wish I had a crystal ball, but right now I think we're holding well on the number that we ordered, and I think we'll be all right for quite some time. Great. Thank you. Dr. Sinclair? Um, I'm not sure, Dr. Fulton, if this is a question for you or um, Ms. Rebeck. The, um, one of our um, Johnson County neighbors who's brought elementary kids back in have, I think, seen maybe two uh, COVID cases per day for the last 15 days, so something, you know, th over 30 cases. Is there anything that are those um, mitigating protocols allowing that dis the district to you know, cohort and isolate those students or, or, and are you, do you have access to that information and in connecting with other superintendents? I'll, I'll definitely uh, have uh, Mr. Rebeck, Rebeck come up and uh, share insights on that. And this is honestly part of the challenge that we're facing in terms of the data. This again is where I think relying on the county becomes important because sometimes when you look at these data, you're not sure exactly what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. You know, are you looking at transmissions that occurred at school? Are these transmissions that occurred outside of the school environment and came into school and then through uh, quarantine or um, uh, other kinds of strategies, they were able to mitigate it quickly so it had minimal impact or no impact? Those are the sorts of things that uh, I think we have to get better on not just us, I think the entire region actually would mm -hmm. be better on understanding exactly what what are these data telling us. So Shelby, do you want to come up? Yeah, I couldn't agree more that we need to figure out what is this data telling us. We, um, we find out about cases because a parent or a staff member call us and let us know that there's a positive case and then we trace back three days prior to that positive case to find out who they were around when they were unmasked within six feet for 10 minutes or more. And then we quarantine those people. So whether that's coworkers or whether that's other students or whether it's a classroom situation, many of our SPED classrooms will be in that situation. Um, but will we know that two cases in a classroom that the transmission occurred in that classroom? I don't think we'll know that because what if this person was exposed from their parent who was positive and this person was exposed from a, a wedding that they went to? Even though coincidentally they're in the same class, I don't think we will necessarily know. Um, now contact tracing will help, uh, but it, it will be difficult to interpret the data. And so, so, um, so was our neighboring district then able to just isolate that class from the positive cases that were identified? And again, I'm asking you to report on another district, so I don't, I don't know how much we're. Are you able referencing to share. the district that had 100 students in quarantine? Is that the? No, I. Um, okay. Well, because I was. I'm no, thinking I'm about cases, about not okay. quarantine. All right. But anyway, I'm. I think you're kind of answering the question. We're still learning and, you know, so I'm assuming that the safety protocols are being implemented and yes, students and are being, classes are being cohorted and... Yes, and the cohorting, what cohorting that does, um, as Dr. Fulton talked about the lunchroom situation, that helps us to exclude a smaller number of people 
That's what cohorting helps us with because you're, when you have your mask off and you're within three feet eating, you know, eating, then you're only going to exclude the people who are within six feet of you versus um, if everybody can be six feet apart, then we don't have to quarantine people. Thank you. Just Stratton? Um, I don't have another question, but as a former board president, I'm going to make a suggestion to, or a recommendation to our board president, as a reminder that this is a time for questions and that anything that's addressed to Dr. Fulton would be in the form of a question. Um, I think there's a slippery slope when we begin to make recommendations or requests, especially if it's around changes. So I want to be very careful that it takes all seven of us to ask the superintendent to do anything, especially in the way of changes. So. That's my point here is this is a Q&A time and I'm reminding this board that that's what this time is for, not for recommending changes. That's something that this body would have to do collectively. Thank you. Reverend Guy? Um, I have a question about high school activities. So we um, have sports. The Keisha activities and sports are back up and running in our schools. Um, but we had asked about some of the other activities. I know we've heard from some parents of students in choir and drama. Do you have an update on when some of those other activities might be able to get up and running? I, I do not, unless I have a team member that can speak to it. Dr. Atha, do you want to? Yes, I, uh, I know Mr. Kramer is, uh, we said we'd let the sports operate a couple of weeks and that we would look into it and we're looking into it right now uh, in music uh, and, and all the other activities as well to see, just see what we can do for moving forward to try to open up some of those activities safely. And as we learn more, uh, we'll certainly report to the superintendent and you'll get the information. Wonderful. I, I feel like that'll take some of the pressure off the parents who are concerned about the social isolation, that if we can get yeah. those kids even just in one club or activity where they have some personal contact that they might feel better. Yeah, we, we recognize the importance of that and we're very tuned into it. And I know there's, as Dr. Ather was sharing, there's, there's definitely some work going on in the background to get to get those needs addressed. Thank you, Reverend Guy. Uh, Ms. Borkman? Yeah, so I just want to take a step back for a second and just clarify, I'm not recommending any changes. I am simply asking a question if we can review gating criteria from CDC, MARC, KSDHE, and make sure that what we're doing is in the best interest of kids. So I just want to make that perfectly clear in case there was any misunderstanding from, from what I had said earlier. Um, and then my question is, um, are we going to have a dashboard to track COVID cases um, in Shawnee Mission? That's a really good question. We've been looking at dashboards from other districts and it goes back to an earlier comment that I made. Uh, dashboards can be helpful but you have to be clear about what you're looking at and what the data are actually telling you about what's happening in your school and in your community. Couple of concerns that we've had is, is that the dash, it's not always clear on the dashboards. Are we talking about something that was a community related transmission or did this actually happen in the school? So that's, that's one issue. What's the purpose and what data are you actually reporting? The second issue is, is that some of these ends, particularly if you report it at a building level, get extraordinarily low. And I'm always reminded of this from, 
from my years of working with testing data that when you get below a certain end, you should not be reporting that in out because it could be personally identifiable. You know, if you have one or two or three ends, that's too low of a number really to be putting out at a school level because especially with the, with, with the public nature of this, you could, be, you could end up personally identifying someone that may have had COVID-19 unintentionally, not through the number, but just through the interaction that people have in the school. So we always have to be careful with these low ends. Some districts have done dashboards by not doing it by, at the school level, but rather doing it collectively, say elementary, middle, high, and reporting them out that way. I think that works well in, in uh, you know, medium-sized districts, maybe you have a couple high schools or a uh, limited number of elementary schools. When you get into a district our size, that, that probably has less meaning. So um, it's something we're looking at. No, we haven't developed a dashboard yet. Um, not saying that we won't, but I think it's something that we need to really think about the purpose and the audience and what messages are we able to send and share. And I, Shelby, I don't know if you want to add to that or not just from a health perspective. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Fulton. Some of the conversations we've had. So um, say we get, um, a, there's a party in one of our feeder patterns and um, those parents report to whatever high school that it is. So now that high school has 10, you know, cases against them and all the other high schools have one or two. The um, the perception of the public on that, like, oh, well, what is that school doing wrong? The school is doing absolutely nothing wrong. It's something that happened in the community. And, and I think we feel that that's not fair. Um, so we really need to be um, mindful if we are going to report data out, what is the meaning of that data? I, I want to emphasize that's, that's not a no. That's a, we just really want to think this through very carefully and make sure that if we're going to have a dashboard that we're, we're clear about what it is we want to communicate so that uh, in the example that Shelby gave that there's not a misinterpretation of what's actually happening in that school that could cause people to be unnerved a bit. It's like, no, there's actually not, there's not a breakout of COVID-19 in this school. Uh, or there was. <laughs> because that would be equally important for people to know. I appreciate the thoughtfulness behind it. I think just for transparency purposes, I think um, just looking at it from purely transparency, I think might be worth considering as well. Yeah, I think you also want to do that in, in cooperation with the, with the public health department. The other issue that we're running into, and I'm going to be very candid, is people are not reporting. So we only know what we are able to have reported to us. And that's becoming a bit of a problem as people are saying, don't report because then you'll get quarantined. That's becoming a real issue. I don't know where that puts us with a, with a dashboard per se, but it's, it is a problem that I know a lot of people are experiencing right now. We're experiencing it, I'd say most of the districts in the area are experiencing it. And that's unfortunate because really, we ought to be at a point in our interaction with each other where we're willing to say, hey, this isn't easy, but for the public good and for your good and everybody else's good, I need to be willing to say to report that out. And if I have to quarantine for the, for the benefit of others, then I need to quarantine for the benefit of others.
if we can get to that point where people feel safe doing that, then we'll do a much better job of making sure that people are not getting infected. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Emery, do you have a question? Uh, I, I was interested to hear if there are any updates on the light speed parental controls. I think at the last meeting, Mr. Lane shared that we would be getting information about how to log in and put some controls on our students' iPads, and I'm curious if that's happened. I know this has been, an, uh, one of our speakers mentioned it in public comment as well. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't have an update on that. Um, oh, do, do, you, do you, okay, perfect. I know he will, because <laughs> he's the expert. So the parent portal with Lightspeed itself is still in beta. It's not, it has not been released to the general public yet, so we don't have access to that. The speaker earlier this evening spoke about uh, the Lightspeed content filter not being set up on iPads, and I'm not sure that that was an accurate assessment of what is actually going on there. What we do have is a parent portal through our mobile device management system that does require codes that can be um, acquired through the, through the building admin. We've been doing that for about three years. Uh, but it is something that, that the parents do have to sign up for and they do need to go through the billing admin to get to that. So there is a distinction between those two things. Lightspeed is the content filter, takes internet content, filters it. The man, mobile, man, mobile device management system is what allows them to use the, have access to additional parental controls on the device itself, which could also include some internet content, but additional functions as well. Have we, I think we might just need to communicate that back out to parents again now that so many of them are finding themselves with all these devices in their homes, especially it wasn't clear to me even as a board member that those were two different functionalities and um, I personally would like to shut off my kid's iPad for portions of the day so it'd be, I'm sure other parents are in the same position. Certainly. I just have a follow-up while you're up there, Drew. Um, I was in the office today and my children were at home um, on their devices um, and my middle son had trouble, and I contacted the folks at Hawker, and the IT fellow at Hawker went to my house, picked up my son's device, took it back to Hawker, coordinated it, went back to my house, tested it on the porch to make sure it was working, and returned it to my son, and I really want to give a shout-out. I don't know who the gentleman was, um, but I was, I was dealing with court issues today and was not able to be there, and I was very appreciative of the fact that someone would go and um, I believe it was possibly operator error and so <laughs> someone took time out of their day to make sure that he had access to his device and I appreciated it. So please let them know that it was very much appreciated. Absolutely well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Goodburn, thank you. Um, I may have just used my question up with that comment so I'll turn it to Dr. Sinclair. Uh, if I could follow up real quick. Oh, sure. Hey, Drew, how many, how many devices do we have? We're recommending about 30,000. Yeah, 30,000 devices. That is, that's a heavy lift. And to do everything that's been done, whether it's devices or Canvas, in the relatively short amount of time that we've done these changes is remarkable and a real tribute to every staff member that's been involved in making this happen. So kudos to all of our staff for their great work. Um, I have another question about the elementary update. Um, could you just provide a little bit more explanation? Of, so there were 20 elementary, so we had 1,300 kids come back in to our elementary schools, correct? The, about 1,300 and it impacted about 20 teachers. Yeah, so we had, uh, to go back to the numbers, we had 
This is pre-K included, pre-K through six. Okay. We had 735 move from remote to in-person, and then 213 uh, moved from in-person to remote. What was that last number again? 213. Yeah. Okay. Now, I think in the previous meeting, I, I had a higher number than that, but, but we had duplications. Okay. So we had to go through and get all the duplications out. So that's why those numbers lowered. So the teachers then that got moved, so it impacted about 20 teachers. Were they able to come back to their main school for the... Uh, uh, they were, the 20 teachers were, um, there were two staff that did have to make a physical move uh, and a learning mode move. It's probably from remote to... Uh, to a different school, and then one staff member that changed learning modes, physical move, and grade level. So, but most of our teachers were able to come back to their school of origin. I'm just trying to get they at were. whether there they was were. some concerns that was, about that that wouldn't happen, and our students were able to come back into their class, their home school. We had real concerns about the amount of movement that would have to happen, and I think because of the, the great work that was done by uh, by a number of staff members, but... Uh, and I'll give uh, a shout out to uh, to Mike and his team and, uh, and okay. Kevin Hansford. I mean, they really did a great job of trying to keep people in place. I think the most, probably the group that may in fact be a little bit frustrated were the remote only folks who had to change teachers because of all the people that we were moving out. And I understand that frustration, but it was unavoidable. At least, if we're going to make this move, it was unavoidable. Thank you. I appreciate that clarification. Mr. Stratton? No further questions. Thank you. Reverend Guy? No further questions. Thank you. Ms. Borgman? I do have a question. Um, regarding Canvas, so I really appreciated our um, presentation last time, last meeting, about Canvas. Um, I think that opened up the door then for some additional feedback <laughs> about Canvas. Um, and I know that there, were, there have been some challenges at the elementary level, as well as um, students who attend our signature programs, such as CAA. Um, and the, there's been a lot of questions about Canvas um, and as a district, are we giving teachers the flexibility to use Google Classroom or another platform if Canvas isn't working for their specific need? Or are we telling our teachers, listen, this is, you've got to stick with Canvas, you've got to make it work. Are we allowing, I mean, we're, are we allowing some flexibility? Yeah, I'm going to have uh, Dr. Hubbard come up and answer that, but before she does, I will make this pitch a little bit. To the extent that we can stay with one platform is best because that's that's your universal standard. Well, of course. I and mean, I think if sure. we could wave a magic wand and say, you know, everybody use this, it's going to work perfectly. But I think yeah. in reality for some elementary, you know, kids as well as for CAA, even at my own house, there's issues. So, um, but I know that there's question about whether teachers actually have the flexibility to use another platform that might benefit students better. Sure, Dr. Hubbard can speak to that. I'm going to clarify one thing in regards to enrollment real quick, and I'm going to come right back to that. I don't think this has been mentioned, but I think it's important to, to mention. Some kids that are in person also had a teacher change. It's not just remote kids. So, for example, if you had 
two second grades out of school and they ended up bringing a remote teacher back because they tipped the limit by you know two kids you had to reshuffle that second grade to balance those classrooms so I just want to be clear that some in-person students also had a teacher change, not just remote. So, and I think we heard that tonight, but I don't think it's been discussed very much. So I, th I think it's important to note. To answer your question, Canvas is our platform. We do expect all teachers to use Canvas. Primarily because we also sold this as that Students and parents need one place to go to find the information. So yes, Canvas, is, we, we do expect teachers to use Canvas. However, as a teacher, and I can't get into great detail, I, I do use Canvas fairly regularly, um, but there's a function where it's called an LTI, and Drew and Christy can both help me with this if they're still here, where we can link some programs to Canvas. Google Classroom is one of those. So, but there are some others that you cannot. That doesn't mean that I can't still use it as a resource, but I do have to, as a teacher, put my assignments in Canvas so that kids can go to a central location, parents can go to a central location, and my grades in Canvas so that, again, we have a central location. Can Anything you would add about the LTI piece that I missed? LTI is an interoperability framework between these web tools to allow them to more efficiently communicate with each other. A component of that is data security. It provides us a layer of data security such that we have, more, we have a higher confidence that data won't leak out of Canvas or any of these other web tools because they have this interoperability with them. And so we can do things like link Google Classroom, Google Drive, those types of things, WebEx, and different communication platforms to those. What we would want to avoid is linking anything that is not LTI compatible. As a matter of fact, you can't link non-LTI compatible uh, tools inside of Canvas. And the reason for that is to not necessarily be restrictive in the sense of not providing flexibility, but being faithful to our commitment and responsibility for data security um, things like students' personal identifiable information, those types of things. And so that interoperability framework provides us that, that little bit of extra and higher confidence in our ability to maintain data where it's supposed to be and in front of the eyes that need to see it. I appreciate that, and I think it may be worth, now that we're three weeks into school, um, it may be worth letting teachers know um, that they, if there's an LTI compatible program such as Google Classroom, that that is something that they can use because, I mean, the frustration is real. I mean, I've experienced it at the kitchen table with my own child, um, so I know I can't be alone in that. And then just hearing from other teachers as well, it might just be worth a mention again to letting teachers know that if what the LTI compatible programs are and how that you know, how it works to, to web merge or, or whatever the vernacular is in terms of getting the LTI to speak to Canvas. I would also add that in some cases, some people are merging LTIs beautifully because they have a skill set for whatever reason. They've used Canvas previously. Um, they've used the free version of Canvas, and so my learning curve might be here where other people's learning curve might be here, right? And so I do, I definitely think um, based on users, I can tell you as a parent and looking at 14 different classrooms, there's definitely 
a different level of how classrooms are set up. So I think that I would also encourage teachers to reach out to their instructional coaches. Some people probably aren't ready for those integration tools. They're just not, at, from a comfort level, they're probably not ready for that. Other teachers are running with that. But um, our instructional coaches, especially, I would uh, reference Lindsay Stevenson at Johnny Mission South. She has been a huge um, part of this implementation. And I know she was here working with the CAA teachers just this past week. So, and she's also been to Horizons working because they don't have a dedicated instructional coach. So those, those instructional coaches are very crucial in this process, and I would encourage teachers to reach out to them. So one of the people that reached out to me is an instructional coach at an elementary level. And so I do, I mean, I, I love what we're saying. I think it's wonderful. I think Canvas is wonderful. I'm glad that we've approved it. I've heard a lot of great feedback from parents, um, but hearing feedback from instructional coaches um, at an elementary level, as well as seeing the struggle from my own child who participates in CAA, it would be a great, you know, just, hey, teachers, FYI, look at an LTI-compatible program for Canvas. Thank you. Ms. Henry, do you have any following questions? No questions. Okay. Um, I think we may be done. One more. Okay, Dr. Sinclair. So the, um, I'm also, again, thinking about in the elementary timeline, I keep looking at the slide before the questions, of, of kids coming back to school for um, coming in person starting October 5th. And for those um, students and parents who live you know who don't who don't have access to bus transportation and are providing their own rides. Carpooling is kind of a thing that I, when I had my kids in school, I I, I relied highly on carpooling. And I don't know if we have protocols to speak to that. So if you have other kids in your car, wear your mask, roll the windows down, use hand sanitizer. I don't know if if that's something that we can speak to because it's an out of school. I don't know. I don't know where the yeah that's gonna that's gonna present a tough one. That's a tough one because at the end of the day that's gonna be a parental choice. But one of the things that we absolutely can continue to emphasize is that this notion of cohorting is important. It's important in school, uh -huh. but the minute the kids leave school, if they're cohorting differently, and if somebody ends up with being exposed to COVID nineteen or getting COVID nineteen. Uh, then that's going to put anybody who's part of that group uh, at risk, and so um, and possibly quarantined. So those are the sorts of educational pieces we just need to keep doing with our community. But at the end of the day, that's is going to be up to the parents to make those decisions, and it's difficult, I know. Yep. And that, by the way, also is one of the issues you get into at the secondary level as well. Mm -hmm. It's part of what you do. You know, a lot of things you control at school. Once they leave the schoolhouse door, mm -hmm. not so much. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, are we, is everybody, are there any final questions? Okay. That concludes that portion of this evening's agenda. Thank you, Dr. Fulton and presenters. Um, we're moving on to item 4.1, which is the approval of the consent items. I will seek a motion for approval. Move approval. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Is there a second? Borgman second. Thank you, Ms. Borgman. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? 
Hearing none, that passes unanimously. Moving on to 5.1, approval revised board policy GAAD, child abuse. This is the second reading. I'll seek a motion in a second, and then if anybody has any final questions for Ms. Goodburn, or if she has anything else to provide us on that, she can, and then we'll take our vote. So is there a motion to approve? I will move approval. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Is there I'll a second? second? Oh, was that you, Mr. Stratton? Thank you, Mr. Stratton. Does anybody have any final questions on this, or any additional questions since our last meeting? Uh, Dr. Sinclair? Um, can I just be reminded that the language here, what's the relation to KASB um, model policy? Exactly. Okay. Yes. Thank you. And then also to provide some more procedure in it. So, yeah, to move to, to model policy. Appreciate the work on this to mm -hmm. the committee members. Thank you. Thank you. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, it passes unanimously. And then we will move on to 5.2, approval of renewing the medical insurance program with Blue Cross and Blue Shield. I will seek the motion in the second, and then I think um, either Dr. Fulton or Dr. Atha has a little bit of information for us on this um, that we can provide to the community. Do we have a motion to approve? Move approval, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. I'll second. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Um, Dr. Fulton and Dr. Atha, the floor is yours. Okay, I'll turn it over to Dr. Atha, and he can also delegate accordingly. Yeah, I think we are asking you this evening to consider um, renewing our medical insurance program with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas City at an increased premium cost of 8.2% uh, that will go into effect January 1, 2021. Uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Schumacher is here this evening as well, as well as Dave Johnson with CBiz. Um, we're, we'll be prepared to answer any questions you may have. Um, I'll open it up. Does anyone have any questions at this time? Uh, Dr. Sinclair? Um, could you speak to the impact? So we were hoping it would stay under 7.8%, but it, I think it climbed almost as high as 10%, and you were able to negotiate it down to 8 But does this have the same impact on every employee, or is there, is there differential impact? depending on policy. And yes, uh, CBiz, uh, Dave Johnson, as I said, is here this evening. And uh, at one time we did think our rates were gonna go up as high as 10%, but uh, CBiz worked with uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield and we were able to get it down to 8.2. Dave, would you like to step up and answer any questions regarding this? Sure, thank you. Um, the actual increase that the district is going to pay is based on the highest cost program. So it's a little larger number. So the lower cost programs are actually gonna benefit from that. So in the case of the HSA programs, as an example, employees are actually gonna get an increase in their HSA contribution because the increase on that plan, which is lower, or which is a lower premium, is gonna give them a little higher number. Does that answer your question? So there are some plans that the increase was below the 7.8%, yes. and so the district will be contributing more to that yes. program and to those employees. Yeah. And then there are some who it, it gets a little bit higher. Um, and but may I tag on please. to your question? Um, for those <laughs> who will be seeing an increase between what we had anticipated being 78 and what is now 8.2, for the what is the percentage of folks who will be seeing increase and then what does that look like reflected in their additional contributions for them as individuals since the district capped at 7.8 are we talking about 15 dollars a month or 
I mean, do you? I, it's it's not above ten dollars a month. I don't believe. Okay. So again, what the the HMO program uh, is the highest cost program, and that's actually the increase that the that the district based the increase on. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's actually I think as part of your package, the rates are in the package. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry, I'm not sure exactly where they are, but it shows exactly what all of those plans are and what those increases are for each plan. Right, so, and I thought it was under the 15. I was just curious, the percentage of employees that are impacted. Do we know, I, are you can, looking that up, I Dr. I can Ethan? tell you exactly how many people are in each plan and how they'd be impacted if, if you want to give me just a second. I'm happy to give you a second. Nothing but time. only I mean it's not even eight o'clock yet we're good <laughs> Mercy. Um, so for the uh, let's see the district contribution is going from six hundred ninety four dollars a month to seven hundred fifty six so the employee cost on as an example the blue care HMO which is the most expensive plan goes from 100 as on an individual goes from a hundred dollars and forty seven cents a month to one oh five fifty five and let's see, for the PPO plan, which is the next, next most expensive, it goes from 92.44 to 93.85. So all the other plans, they're, they're less. Great. And in the case of the, the <laughs> you have a wonderful HSA plan, two of them, and employees get a huge contribution to their health savings account. And both of those increase this year. So that's a real positive step. And Let's see. I can tell you that you have in the Blue Care plan 661 subscribers, which would be employees or <coughs> excuse me, or retirees if they happen to be in that plan. 758 members. That would be your largest plan. And then the Preferred Care Blue plan, the PPO plan, has 367 subscribers. 427 and it's also it's almost evenly split with the rest of the plans where everyone is thank you I appreciate it you bet are there any further follow-up questions thank you for the work okay well thank you for the work thank you. Um, we'll take the vote all those in favor please say aye. aye aye are there any opposed hearing none that passes unanimously okay and we're moving on to comments from board members and um, We've been starting with Ms. Henry all night, so I'll go ahead and start over there again and let you take it away. Um, I guess I, I just, well, first I want to start by saying happy birthday to my son, Sam, who is um, falling asleep right now. It's his eighth birthday tonight. Um, he is a second grader at Trailwood, and he is the sweetest of my three boys. So I want to say happy birthday to him first, first and foremost, because he is an empath and he watches me and he watches me in stress and he doesn't know how to deal with that. So happy birthday to him. Um, I just want to note that like all of us are making a lot of personal sacrifices to be part of this board. And I have really accepted that we are not going to make everyone happy with what we do on school reopening. I think we've all swallowed that bitter pill a long time ago. But what I've promised that I will do is put kids first and foremost in all of these conversations. Um, and I don't feel like we've had 
a process that has allowed for those conversations to be happening. The outcomes we're landing at might be just fine, but um, I personally don't feel like I've had room or opportunity to weigh in on really important decisions that the board and that the district are making. I feel like we've deferred some really important policymaking authority that we should have kept. Um, we haven't communicated as well as we should, as we should. Um, and I don't think we've set our North Star at getting as many kids into schools as we possibly can. Um, and I say all that just because it's one thing to miss your kid's eighth birthday when you feel like the outcome's really worth it, and it's another thing to miss it when you feel like um, the outcome's not really worth it, and you can't ask questions, and you can't weigh in, and you can't make your opinion known. And that's 100% how I feel right now is that I've missed a really important night with my own kid to be here and to be unheard and unable to engage in important conversations. So those, that's my comment. Ms. Cooper? Okay. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out to Lee Risco. She's the Shawnee Mission South Spanish teacher and she was awarded the Kansas World Language Association Teacher of the Year Award. Um, we got the email about it about a week ago and um, seemed like a pretty big deal. So I wanted to tell her congratulations. Um, I think we're looking at additional conversations as we move forward and um, we will take each day as it comes. And I will move it over to Dr. Sinclair. Um, I would just like to affirm to folks that um, whether you're sending an email to board members or to the superintendent or to ask the district that your emails are being read and that you might not get a personalized response or a response right away. The volume of emails coming in is very um, significant. Um, 50 to 100 pages a day is what's coming across some of the board members. I can't imagine what's coming in through at the district, but your emails are being read and considered as massive decisions are being made at the district level. So just wanted to articulate that tonight. And Ms. Embry, I'm, I'm Anyways, I can talk to you later. Mr. Stratton? Uh, no additional comments. Thank you. Reverend Guy? Uh, last week, Mrs. Goodburn and I attended online the Caring for Kids kickoff in the fall, and um, that was just a great affirmation that our school has a wider community, that um, it's is coming alongside us, and identifying the needs of our students and families and finding ways to step in and help. And um, I think we have felt very isolated and alone. And it was just a great reminder that the community supports our district, supports our schools, supports our students and their families. Um, there's a new executive director of Kansas City Caring for Kids, Portia Seals, and I think she's going to be great. And we had a fantastic conversation in the uh, the breakout time um, at the end. And um, I know Dr. Ziegler was on there and uh, Dr. McKinney. And just to talk about what things were we seeing and identifying in the needs of students. And so one of the things that I raised is I'm very concerned about a potential of a wave of evictions um, coming in in months that might affect a 
large number of our students and their families, and we can't meet any of their needs, social, emotional, physical, or academic, if our kids don't even have a place to live. So um, it was great to, to name that, and Dr. Ziegler had some encouraging news that other people are looking at that too, but um, to, to know that um, Caring for Kids is going to look at that with us and try to figure out what can we start putting in place now that's going to be there to meet maybe some urgent needs from our families down the road. I hope it doesn't come to that, but if it does, it's great that we already have people looking at that and trying to figure out possible solutions. So um, there's a lot of fear and anxiety and darkness and stomach churning right now, but there's also some lights of hope. And so um, I just want to thank Caring for Kids and all of our community partners. Thank you. Ms. Hembree? I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Ms. Borkman? <laughs> That's okay. Uh, again, I take that as a compliment. Um, so, a couple things. Um, first, a shout out, a couple shout outs. Um, I would like to thank David Armovich with Project Home. Um, I referred a couple moms, single moms with young, young babies uh, to David today. Um, on Sunday, my family and I decided our church service would be to help some of these single moms. Um, and that was very impactful for me as well as my kids. And I uh, just really want to thank David for providing these young moms um, with services um, that will hopefully help keep them in their homes and get them the resources that they need. Um, and I want to give a shout out to all the administrators who are, especially the principals, who are kind of caught in the middle right now um, from, you know, being a shoulder uh, to cry on or lean on, um, figuratively speaking, of course, um, for teachers, as well as taking so much um, feedback from parents. And I know that it can be hurtful and mean. Um, and there has been a recent suicide in the Johnson County community of an administrator who used to be part of Shawnee Mission, and I know that a lot of Shawnee Mission teachers and administrators are hurting as a result of that, and um, I just want to remind people to be here tomorrow. Just be here tomorrow. If, if you can't think about anything else, please think about just being here tomorrow. Um, we're going to get through this. Um, we're a team. And um, if you need any encouragement, you can call me, you can email me, and I would love to be your cheerleader and your encourager. And also, please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, I know that uh, calls are up to Johnson County Mental Health by 25%. Um, and so we're, we're really struggling as a community. Um, and just remember to be here tomorrow. I also can't ignore the fact that mental health keeps getting brought up time and time again for our secondary students um, and keeping them home uh, is a struggle for them. And hearing the parent uh, speak tonight that said, you know, when his kiddo who's in secondary sees their friends that 
they just light up and that's a real thing. And so I would like for us to really review JCDHE criteria and make sure that it's the right criteria for our district because in JCDHE, it did not account for mental health. It did not count for childhood obesity. It did not have, to my knowledge, any educators on its gating criteria panel. Um, and mental health is a huge issue right now in our community and for our secondary students, and we cannot ignore that. And so I think taking a real hard look at different gating criteria and the pros and cons of each, what other districts are doing around the area and the outcomes that they've had would be very, very beneficial for students. And as I take a step back, you know, I was sworn into the board in January, and so I'm, you know, almost 10 months into this, and I'm going, why did I do this again? And um, my value, my number one why is kids. And so we have to make sure we are doing right by our kids and challenging status quo for our kids is okay to do. So I would highly encourage us as a board, as seven members, to take a look at this together collectively and make sure that what we are doing is right for our kids, all kids. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have a regularly scheduled board workshop on Monday, October 12th, and then a regularly scheduled board meeting on Monday, October 26th, and there is no additional um, executive business after the meeting this evening, so the meeting is adjourned. Thank you, everyone.